and the intro music starts playing. Woohoo! everyone i am david clink and i am troy harkin and this is two old farts and we're talking sci-fi okay and uh uh-huh jump jump right in troy tell me what you're thinking well the first thing i'm thinking dave is we uh maybe tell our uh, listeners who have stumbled onto us um exactly who we are so uh david I understand you do a little writing. Yes, um, Troy. What I do is I've been writing poetry for about 25 years and have made a great living at it, but that's fiction. And if there was a robot involved, it would be science fiction. Um, and that's the main gist of it. I'm switching over to science, to some science fiction that is – short stories and novels and novellas and novelettes and those kinds of things. So I'm actually switching from poetry over to fiction. And how about yourself? Well, I just want to add to that, that I, uh, not only do you write, but you write extremely well. You're one of my favorite living Canadian uh, poets out there. Uh, you are extremely talented and extremely funny. Um, and I think uh, as a result, David, you're a keeper. Um, uh, myself, uh, yeah, almost the same deal there. Uh, I've, uh, I've lived a good chunk of my life in the previous century, which is sort of like time traveling, I guess. And in all that time, I've been uh, writing uh, and I've written a little bit of everything. I've, it's not so much dabbling. It's just I love to write. So I started off writing uh, um, short stories uh, when I was in my late teens, early 20s. Um, uh, as somebody who grew up uh, when I did in the sh- sort of shadow of the British invasion, um, I-, I wanted a guitar because I understood that's that was one thing that could help lead to uh, procreation. Um, you-, you had to actually have a guitar and know how to play it if you were ever going to get to talk to a girl. So, uh, so I did that. I, I, I did a little bit, bit of uh, playing in the Toronto uh, music scene in the, I guess that was mid to late 80s at that point, wrote a number of songs. Uh, I still love to play and write. And uh, it, it just really quickly along the way, ended up writing some poetry when the songs didn't work out. And I, I wasn't writing an A, B, uh, verse, chorus, verse, chorus structure. I realized, oh, my God, I've written a poem. What the hell am I doing? And then I found out I actually loved writing poetry and published uh, some of that. And uh, I've got two novels on the way. I've got a book of poetry that came out through Cheezine and uh, other things like that. So a little bit of everything, including 12 feature-length screenplays. <sighs> That's me. Um, and uh, really, the reason we wanted to do this show is we wanted to share our love of genre, specifically science fiction and, and horror in all its uh, different um, mediums. Um, and so here we are on, uh, 
episode one of Two Old Farts Take Sci-Fi. And uh, we thought we would share with you, our, our listeners, um, a little bit more about us before we move on to all the other topics that we want to cover in the upcoming years and millennia. Um, so, David, uh, how about you? What were the things that, that first drew you to uh, sci-fi or horror when you were really young? Like, what are some of the first things you can remember that affected you? Well, one of the first things that I remember was being outside. This was back in West Hartford, Connecticut, when I was maybe five. And I'm outside in the wintertime building a snow fort. And my mother opens the back door and yells out to me, David, they've got Will. They've got Will. Wow. So, of course, I run with my little feet up into the uh, up into the house and find out that of course that somehow these aliens have captured will who is the kid in lost in space danger will robinson um exactly so where was a robot at this point and where was the rest of his family it's like will what's going on here so that's my, one of my first one my second my second sort of taste of this was the following week when I'm outside, it's still winter and I'm building another snow fort or maybe working on the one I was already working on. And my mother comes out the back door and says, they've got Will. They've got Will. So I run in and it turns out the aliens have got Will again. But these are different aliens <laughs> than the previous week, which, of course, is sort of like Scorcher 6. It's This time right. it's different. Right. Um, and then my third experience of, of sort of science fiction and genre was the following week where my mother opens the back door and says, they've got Will. And I was starting to finally catch on, just like in the old Batman serial with Adam West and Burt Ward, where at the half hour mark, they were captured by whoever the, the bad guy is. And they're just about to be killed by some long, elaborate process that involves right. laser beams on the heads of four uh, of sharks. Hold a hopeful breath for Aunt Harriet until tomorrow night. Same bat time, same bat channel. And then, of course, they would somehow get out of it, like the perils of Pauline like a serial from the forties and they would somehow get out. And then the next episode, they run into a different uh, villain and the same thing would happen at the half hour mark somewhere during the episode, they would be walking up the side of, uh, of um, an apartment building and somehow run into some famous person. We must Robin. It's the only way. Oh, oh, you must be because that's Robin. Hi Robin. Yes, citizen. But don't be alarmed. We're here on official business. Holy human flies. So, and there's, they had all of that stuff. So those are early experiences for me beyond things like Star Trek, which I may have only remembered one of the, the first run of episodes, uh, Man from Uncle, Time Tunnel, uh, Boys to the Bottom of the Sea, those kinds of things. Like this is partly why we're, we're doing this podcast is talk about early science fiction, fantasy, horror, magic, real, whatever it is, anything that's beyond just the normal. And what was it that got us excited and made us such avid readers of whether it's a books, comics, 
whether it's TV, whether it's movies, whatever the, the connection is, what really drew us to science fiction. So tell me, was that, do you, do you suspect that was intentional indoctrination on your mom's part? Uh, was she a, a fan of genre? I'm not sure how much of it, you know, you know there are things like these, there wasn't that much choice back then. Nowadays, you've got a thousand different stations and you've got Netflix, you've got Amazon Prime, you've got Disney Plus, you've got a hundred other things, all making, in a lot of cases, very quality. There's more stuff for an actor, for a writer, for a producer now than 50 years ago. There weren't that many stations, but I was on a panel with my uh, brother-in-law a few years ago. I think it was in uh, 2016, and we're and it was the whole topic was 50 years ago, 1966, December. What was on TV? Well, almost every other episode was a science fiction or fantasy or horror kind of show. Right. It was like at the the peak of when everything dark shadows was on right um and what we did was i found an old um tv guide that i had because i just picked this up years ago at a science fiction convention um and it was one from december of 1966 and on the cover it was rat patrol which was one of it was not a genre show but it is was one of my favorite shows back then and inside it of course with tv guide you had every night's listings and what we did at the panels where we just went through oh monday night well this was on this and and they gave descriptions of what happened in those episodes oh yeah so we could actually remark oh did we see that or not and there was an actual part of the tv guide that was an in-depth look at dark shadows with pictures of the actual mansion where they shot and interviews with the cast yeah I, i definitely have a memory of uh you know when we would go grocery shopping when i was a a kid and uh, I would always make sure that my parents grabbed uh, the TV guide. And I, I think at one point they ended up getting a subscription so it didn't become an issue. But as soon as I got home from the grocery store, I would pull out the TV guide and you would read it, you know, like to see what was on because, you, you know, you didn't want to miss certain things. And um, like, for example, if you knew that uh, the original King Kong was going to be on TVO or something like that, because this is pre-VCR, uh, pre-any kind of recording. So if you missed it, you missed it. <laughs> that was it. Um, and I've heard stories about people going through the TV guide, seeing something was on a local channel at 1 a.m. And, you know, even though they were like 10, they would stay up or try to stay up until 1 a.m. to watch uh, like Dr. Caligari or something like that. Um, so it's funny. if. Uh, if, if I'm taking the baton here, um, I would say that uh, speaking of our mothers, uh, I would definitely have to, uh, you know, put a, a, a large portion of the blame slash thanks for my love of genre uh, on my mother, um, because uh, particularly with horror, like she was a huge horror fan for a long period of time you know, that I was growing up. And uh, I have a memory, a very early memory of seeing a copy that she had of We've Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. 
uh, on our bookshelf. It was a paperback edition, but it had a really gothic sort of grotesque cover with this sort of witch-like figure uh, built into a fence. And, um, you know, it was the images on those covers that, uh, you know, both intrigued and frightened me uh, when I was little. And I'm talking about probably grade one, uh, because I know where we were living at the time. And I know that was during grade one. Um, And the other big one, you know, sometimes there was things that I'd feel uncomfortable with uh, on television. And usually it revolved around music, you know, the sort of creepy scores that would go along with horror and even sci-fi for a while. Um, But um, one time when we were living in the Ottawa area, uh, my mom had a a show on in the middle of the afternoon. And this would have been a few years after the film Black Sabbath came out, which is a Mario Bava film. It's an Italian anthology film. And uh, it is, uh, the stories are all framed by Boris Karloff. And uh, one of the stories uh, is based on a a Chekhov short story. Um, And in it, there is a woman who you learn was, involved with the occult who has just passed away. Uh, and uh, this other woman who is, uh, I guess, a, a housekeeper is asked to come over and help tidy up the room after this woman has has passed away and help change her into a dress. And she notices that that there's this really wonderful, ornate ring on the woman's hand, on the witch's hand. Um, and uh, so this woman is tempted to take the ring. And now the, this witch already, when you first see her, her face is in this really grotesque death mask. It's grimacing. The eyes are open. Uh, and the woman who's asked to come over cannot close the eyes, cannot close the eyelids uh, of this woman. Anyway, it's it, just the image of the face was very creepy. Um and uh, I, I don't want to spoil it too much for people who haven't seen it. I would recommend it. It still holds up. But I was just haunted by this face of, of this dead woman. And again, so this is like grade one for me. It might have even been the, the summer prior to grade one. Definitely one of the other things that... Um, my mother would have on uh this was at nights whatever year uh the night gallery premiered i'm going to say it's around 70 it might have been 69 70 the season of 69 70 um just the uh the really odd uh like modern music that was used for that score uh, for the opening theme was really creepy and freaked me out. And I knew that it meant trouble. And it meant, you know, you're going to be off balance. You're going to be frightened. Um, and uh, yeah, so for years, I would just plug my ears when uh, I heard the beginning of the night gallery theme. I remember my night gallery moment was, and it's neat. Obviously we should have, um, taken a look at the beginning and end, but this is just our first episode. We're just doing a sort of an overall, sense of 
what's influenced us and what we plan on doing with the series because we're going to have episodes that will deal with specifically one thing like horror movies of the 60s or the planet of the apes film or uh, and so on or or one specifically about ray bradbury so we will get into more of a deep dive we're doing sort of an overview right now one thing that has always stayed with me was we would go to a drive-in now this is the old style drive-ins not where you would tune your car radio to a specific frequency and hear it that way you'd get these things hooked on the windows so that's where you would hear and we'd all be you know you just basically watch the big screen out in that in the in a field north of the city kind of thing you know your standard drive-in experience and we saw some things that probably young people shouldn't see <laughs> that's right one of them one of them was a night gallery episode a movie like this was on the big screen oh, so it was nice. a movie and this thing was horrific it gave me nightmares for years because there was this part i think it was a three-parter uh you know sort of like a trilogy of terror of its time and there was this thing up in this barn that was chained to a bed and some kids or someone went up to try to figure out what this thing was. There was a line, a chalk line in sort of a half circle. And clearly you would think you don't want to cross that line because maybe that's the length of, that's as far as this thing can reach. And right. there were these eyeballs on the ground among wow. the, uh, amongst the hay. And this was maybe a bit uh, too much. I also watched a Dark Shadows thing on at a drive-in an actual dark shadows movie. Oh, that's cool. And, and that was quite something because it was basically the dark shadows series, but it was in some movie form of some sort. Maybe they just did. So just like they did with, um, uh, Battlestar Galactica, there was an actual thing I saw at the university theater. That was a film. What they do is they splice together a couple episodes and showed this back in the late seventies at the university theater, and probably at other places. That was, and I remember that that being, because I got there a bit late, I was stuck in the smoking section because back then you could actually smoke in theaters. I, but this whole thing with the dark shadows film was Whatever it was, because I, I have such a poor memory of it, other than how scared I was at the end, because there was this big fight between the two main characters. And this woman was waiting to see who would walk through the door, who would be triumphant. Would it be okay for her or would it be the wrong guy? And if it turns out this person walked with a limp, it would be the wrong guy or something. And then you hear this person walking with a limp coming towards her. Uh, kind of thing. That's my memory. If I see it again, I'd probably say, oh, that's completely wrong, my, my recollection of it. <laughs> but that was a bit, for someone who was six or eight years old or whatever at the time, that's a bit young to watch something like that. Um, yeah, you know, I, I've heard so many stories from people over the years, people who'd be about our age, who ended up going to the drive-in uh, with their parents, and the parents assumed that, uh, like, they knew that there was going to be an intense uh, second feature, uh, there'd be like a Disney film or something like the Jungle Book as the first film. And they assume that their kids would fall asleep by, uh, by the second film. And uh, so I know folks who uh, their parents went to see uh, Night of the Living Dead as the second film. 
um, and they were awake through it. And um, another one was The Exorcist. And I should ask my wife, but she told me a, a situation like that where her parents took her. They assumed she'd be asleep for the second film. And uh, she insisted that they leave. Um, she like put her foot. <laughs> it's like, no, we're leaving or I'm walking home. And uh, and she refused to go again, and and didn't go until uh, we ended up going to. Uh, there's a drive-in in our area um, when we had small kids, and it was a godsend being able to bring our kids. And no, no, we did not go see something like uh, Freddy versus Jason as the second film. Um, but uh, you know, back to uh, the night gallery for a second. Uh, two that I remember. Uh, one really freaked me out. It was with uh, Ron Howard's brother, uh, Clint Howard, who I guess was, well, I mean, he's been a, in a ton of things, but he, around that time he would have been in Gentle Ben, um, the story about a boy and his bear. And um, anyway, the, the, the episode was called, I believe, The Boy who saw earthquakes or something along those lines. Basically the, this kid was psychic and he had the ability to, uh, you know, to know when an earthquake was coming and he would warn people. Um, and uh, in the end, I'm trying to remember if, if it was like he, he sensed there was going to be a bomb or just, it was a cataclysmic earthquake. Um and that in itself just really freaked me out as a kid. I thought I couldn't imagine having that gift slash curse um, and that responsibility. Uh, and I thought, you know, even I think maybe I wasn't aware of the idea of psychic abilities. So I was like, I don't want that. I don't want to know that, you know, thousands of people are going to die. Um, so that was uh, a real bothersome situation as a kid. And the other one that I don't know that I saw, but uh, definitely remember hearing about, and that was the earwig episode, um, where not only do they tease you with the idea of uh, earwigs going into your ear and uh, eating your brain, but as punishment for one character, they intentionally plant uh, an earwig into their head and, and to make it worse, it's a pregnant earwig. So there are going to be many little earwigs in this person's head is the idea. That was, yeah, that was a doozy. Yeah. We are planning on uh, doing a podcast in the first season, I think uh, with the title shrinkage um, that will deal with all the small kind of weird, creepy crawly kind of, well, that might even be another episode, but uh, that's right. But, um, certainly, shrink, and, and, it's a, the incredible shrinking man, and, and those kinds of things, or the borrowers, and those kind, you know, where, or even the master who would kill people by actually shrinking them, and the shock of being shrunk down to a small size is that's what kills right. Them. That's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to that one. And I think, and for both of us, we've we've talked about how um, the uh, Adam West Batman series was a, a huge deal for us uh for many reasons um least of which was uh, julie newmar in her catwoman outfit and uh i guess batgirl as well but um even though there were more yeah. than there, there was not just julie but for me julie is always the ultimate catwoman yes and yvonne craig we're planning if, if we uh get this series 
going and eventually doing maybe a uh, Valentine's special. We might do a beefcake and cheesecake, which are some of those things that happen at conventions where you can pay money and you actually get pictures with people that are, whether it's a guy or a gal, that's that's considered uh, super attractive kind of thing, our beefcake and cheesecake. So we may do something like that about our, just our early crushes in the science fiction and genre field. I have a, uh, a a quick little thing here for you, Dave, in, in, in terms of Batman. I, it's a story that I'm, I'm sure I haven't told you before in the past. But um, uh, so the series would have come on in 66, I guess the 66, 67 television schedule season. And um, so and that's and I would have been basically two uh, when that show came on and I was watching was one of the, my earliest memories is dancing to the 45 of the Batman theme. Uh, I still have that 45, but um, my parents decided uh, that uh, they should take me to church <laughs> as, as good Catholic parents. And the first time supposedly that I, I went to church and again, as a, about two or three, so I'm essentially a toddler and uh the first time I saw the uh, the priest uh, enter and heading up towards the altar with his uh, purple vestments on, with you know the flowing robe, I stood up in the pews and I pointed and I went, "It's Batman!" And uh, so I think <laughs> that's maybe that's an association I have to this day. Maybe that's why, yeah, I, I, I still think of uh, some priests as being like the Batman. Yeah. Um... And certainly if you look at some of the guests and some of the, just what they did on that Batman, I, I was obviously played up. It was very campy, of course. Uh, anytime they'd show Londinium, it's of course covered in fog. It's sort of like Ottawa in July in, in right. snow in the Canadian conspiracy. Right. So they had these running kind of thing, but the number of guests, like they had Roddy McDowell as one of the guys, they had Vincent Price as one of the, like a lot of the actors and actresses, you know, because it was very popular. Yeah, it was a very popular show, but it was also something where um, just like Vin Diesel has has children that said, hey, you have to play Groot because when he mentioned to the kids, well, I don't know if I want to do this, but they offered me Groot and they said, you have to take it. Right. That whether how, how many of this is their kids or people that they know watching the show and having so much fun, like Cesar Romero, who was very much a, a um, very good actor and sort of the leading man type of guy, just enjoyed the hell out of playing the Joker. Like he just took it to it. Like he could actually do stuff he could never do as a leading man, just playing a regular role. He could just totally go nuts and the same thing with uh frank gorshin and the riddler like they can just right. have a ball i mean the most recent thing i've seen of that is as the one of the main guys in zed nation from a couple of years ago where he he just had a character that just did the craziest things you can imagine and i'm sure he must have had fun doing that yeah you know uh i remember i, I heard this not that long ago like I, I just learned this recently that stephen stills of crosby stills nash and young and buffalo springfield he was saying that because uh, that's when uh, they would have all been recording around um uh, well los angeles but he, he was talking about you know the show was so popular that musicians 
if they had studio time, they would want to take a break on, I think it was on Tuesdays and Wednesdays or Wednesdays and Thursdays, one of the two, but they would take a break in that half hour so that they could watch Batman, you know, like 25 year old musicians would stop because it was, it was like the show to watch. Um, and, you know, you even had a, a band like The Who in 1966 recording the Batman theme because it was just that cool. You know, it it crossed uh, all aspects of culture at the time. Yeah, hopefully we'll have a chance to do an episode just on some of the themes. It depends on 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 whether we can get either rights or you're allowed to play a certain amount of time, like under nine, ten seconds or whatever it is to play bits or just talk about some of these great themes because there were so many great themes running through um, uh, genre stuff. Now, when you talked about one thing that, that we don't want to overlook are animated comics and, and animated shows, because it was amazing just how many things were genre were sort of science fiction, fantasy, that kind of stuff like Scooby-Doo. Um, there's also the series of, uh, um uh with the quest um and haji um oh johnny quest johnny quest yeah. and i don't know if that quite like i would have to watch it again but maybe nowadays it may not be quite as but of course if you have someone like a jar jar from years ago and that the the guy that owned that pod racer thing like oh, so, right. in some cases some right. characters are are not so I don't know if the uh, Johnny Quest quite holds up nowadays, but I just loved it. And it had all the, and it wasn't like Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo, there's always those pesky kids who can uh, somehow undo this thing that looks like it's something that is some horror thing or some sort of a supernatural thing going on, which scares someone and makes them want to give away whatever it is that they've got. And then the Scooby-Doo comes in and they, they're able to take off the disguise. But in Johnny Quest, if it was a mummy that was two stories high, that could actually look through a second story window. Right. It is a mummy that is two stories high that can see through a second story <laughs> window. Like it was the actual real fake stuff. That's right. And one of the things that uh, we'll want to get into at some point is uh, an examination of the effect that uh, the space race had on the culture in terms of films, television shows, um, because, you know, producers, producers have always wanted to, uh, you know, have their, uh, their, their, their thumb on the pulse of what's going on, you know. Um, and so the, the space age, as it was known, is, is no exception. So you've got that whole period from Sputnik uh, to, you know, let's say at least to uh, the man on the moon in 1969, where so much uh, reflected what was going on um, in trying to get uh, – astronauts to the moon and so you even have a show like uh, even though uh i believe the original josie and the pussycats was uh was after um the uh the moon landing but that show morphed into josie and the pussycats to josie and the pussycats in outer space right everything sort of ended up having a uh a space uh twist to it and I guess there was the original version, the Hanna-Barbera version of Space Ghost as well, 
um, which, you know, was uh, relaunched as a, uh, uh, an ironic talk show by um, uh, Adult Swim uh, back in the 90s. You know, folks, I ran into Metallica just last year at a celebrity pro-am down in Myrtle, Myrtle Beach last year. Myrtle Beach, right? So right. Pebble. Pebble Beach, right. Got it. Well, there's also there's also pigs in space. <laughs> That's right. But one of the things that that we that we've talked about is because this this kind of thing has been has gone on for quite a while, like like TV shows um, that have that kind of uh, genre feel, like that are genre, like boys at the bottom of the sea and time tunnel and other ones but there was the george reeves right. superman from the late right, 50s that, but of course the, oh no no yeah, i was ahead. just going to say which was uh, even though it was from the 50s uh it ended up being resurrected in syndication uh which is you know how our generation came upon it and uh we also talked about uh on our own how uh you know there were um, shows out of Buffalo, New York. Um, in the morning, it was uh, Rocket Ship Seven, uh, which basically showed Looney Tunes and other cartoons. But after school, there was the Commander Tom show, and Commander Tom would, uh, along with uh, the Adams family, they would also show uh, in alternating days Superman, and then the next day would be Batman. Uh, so you would get the 66 Adam West Batmans and the uh, the 50s, uh, sometimes black and white, sometimes color, um, George Reeves. Superman. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. There was just so much on at the time. Like the 60s also, a lot of reruns also had things um, like a number of like F troop in combat, but also had a lot of stuff that was Westerns. And that's how Gene Roddenberry sold the idea. Or that was one of the sayings or things he said was he wanted to refer to Star Trek as wagon train to the stars to try to sell the concept of them having a show set in outer space. Well, it's just simply a Western sort of like, um, you know, and it's neat how much a Western influence, whether it's the movie Outland, which definitely is high noon in outer space, or Cowboys versus Aliens, or Firefly and Serenity. That there's, there's this connection between the Western and science fiction that's kind of interesting. That's right. That's right. And the whole... Uh you know, the new frontier type of thing, which was that actually a phrase that Kennedy used in his pitch to, uh, you know, further the space race? For the problems are not all solved and the battles are not all won. And we stand today on the edge of a new frontier, the frontier of the 1960s, the frontier of unknown opportunities and perils, the frontier of unfilled hopes, and unfilled threats. The new frontier is here, whether we seek it or not. Beyond that frontier are uncharted areas of science and space, unsolved problems of peace and war, unconquered province of ignorance and prejudice, unanswered questions of poverty and surplus. It would be easier to shrink from that new frontier to look to the safe mediocrity of the past, 
to be lulled by good intentions and high rhetoric, and those who prefer that course should not vote for me or the Democratic Party. But I believe that the times require imagination and courage and perseverance. I'm asking each of you to be pioneers towards that new frontier. Definitely with the Western, it was going out West and just everything with that. Now, one of the things I was wondering, because it sort of skirts the the whole genre kind of speculative thing that we're interested in, but things like I Spy and the Bond films right. and Matt Helm and, and uh, In Like Flint and those kinds of things, because some of the stuff that technology and some of the stuff they use is either cutting edge or stuff they're making, like to, to have this invisible card. In That's the Bond, right. Later Bond films. That's right. Um, that I don't know if these are ones, cause you could, we could just do an episode just on the, um, the spies, spies. That's right. In, uh, that's right. And, and, you know, that's, that's, uh, I hadn't really thought of that, but that's true. You know, when you take the, um, uh, those Fleming novels, and I mean, many of the movies were very close to the novels, but once you start to uh, put a character like uh, Blofeld uh, out there, you know, it's not a stretch, you know, going from uh, Blofeld basically to uh, Dr. Evil. You know, there's some some pretty far out there contraptions and almost, uh, almost Batman-like uh, scenarios that you get into, especially uh, by the time you get to uh, uh, Diamonds Are Forever, where, it, it, you know, I had never actually heard uh, the, any direct reference to Batman, but uh, there was definitely a sense of campiness by the time you hit uh, Diamonds Are Forever with Connery. I guess it was Connery had just returned for that film as well, right? Because, uh, um, what was the previous yeah. one with, with Lazenby? Well, th- well th- there was even a couple because I think George Lazenby or Lazenby um, did On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Now that had Diana Rigg, who we of course loved from um, the, 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 one, the, the series Avengers. that had Steve, yeah. the Avengers. Um, yeah. now, what the original happened, Avengers. I think, yes. Now, and one of the things that, that, that with the timeline of, of the, uh, uh, 007 films is that I think what had happened was Lazenby or Lazenby came in and did that one. And then I thought that, um, that Connery came back for one. Um, but, uh, Roger Moore's first one was live and let die. Right, which um, I think follows uh, Diamonds. Roger Moore, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. oh, maybe it I, – I think Diamonds Are Forever actually followed it. There was a, a, a quiz, uh, and, they, and we got it right, which was what was the first of the Roger Moore films, and it was Live and Let Die. So I think – Right. Um, and the Diamonds Are Forever is when Connery came, Connery came back and did that one. Uh, and then and they, then, they packed it in yeah. and then more. And then that was it. And then more, what happened with more is that for like the thing with Roger Moore, and you saw this also at Piers Brosnan, like Piers Brosnan was in a series where he was a spy and everyone kept saying he should be bond. Roger Moore yeah. was in the saint. 
and the saint was a great series and he played it. It was more straight up. It wasn't this like, like with Roger Moore, the later films, it just became more campy and more ridiculous and more silly. And that first one, live and let die. It still stands up as, as a really good bond film. For sure. Now, uh, I'm going to be leaving out an important part of the story here, and I apologize, listeners, but I I, I have a number of the uh, the Bond DVDs, and I was listening to I suppose it was the commentary track uh, with George Lazenby. I mean, no, you know what? It was probably there's a, a documentary on on uh, Eon Films uh, where I probably heard the story, but Lazenby was saying that uh, you know he had been doing modeling work prior to. Uh, the film and he came in and uh, there was somebody that he was working with who basically was saying, you know, this is very square. This is very uh, establishment. You know, you're representing the man basically Uh, you know, you're, it's a pro violence film. What are you doing? And, uh, and, and as this guy was sort of in his ear throughout the whole production, he also started getting him into things like acid and he, so he started like dropping acid and doing drugs and basically was veering into the whole counterculture thing. And uh, even though he originally was thinking that he would become the new bond to take over for Connery period, um, he'd sort of had this change of heart and that he wanted to basically just be a hippie. He didn't want to be this like square with his suit and his short hair and, and uh, being pro violence. So he basically said when the film was over, no, that's it. Thanks. Um, And, and that was the day for him. And I will try to find out the, the person that influenced him for all of us. It's kind of like, yeah, because I saw, well, I saw a, a thing on on um, on Lazenby or, or Lazenby, and he um, was someone that just really went after the like he just really pushed for the role. Now he had not much acting experience at all. He could ski, and I guess he did some <laughs> modeling, or and that's important did, in a Bond could, film. Well. Well, in that specific Bond film, that was one of the keys. And you don't want to just have to cut away to someone else pretending to be Bond. Like he did, I assume, a lot of the the skiing bits of the film. And from my recollection, watching some special on this, that he was the he was the one that was really pushing himself to try to be cast as Bond and finally wore down the producers and, and they finally hired him. Um. So, David, um, I want to get to something uh, in a second here. I want to uh, change it up a little bit, but I, I just want to put a quick asterisk out there. We're going to, at some point, probably be dealing with The Exorcist a lot uh, because, for me, it was one of those big, massive game changers. I'm not going to talk about it too much more, but but suffice it to say, it was a big deal in sort of my development as both a human and as a uh, genre uh, bracket horror writer. Um, But that's what I wanted to ask you, David, is is we sort of, uh, you know, grew a little bit more if we can sort of uh, time travel now from our uh, younger years to say high school or so, what were your uh, big influences, especially in terms of say writing? 
and writers? Uh, well, for me, the, the, my favorite novel uh, is Dune. Uh, that's Frank Herbert's novel. Uh, he also had a whole bunch of sequels. Like originally it was a trilogy. It was the f- book. And then there were two more um, of which I think the middle book was just more of a gap. Like you just go through it. It's, it's like a filler kind of thing. No one considers it in the top one or two of that trilogy. And then there was a fourth and a fifth and a si- and then so on. And then eventually Frank Herbert's son was writing Dune books um, but Dune itself, what really captivated me, plus things like um, Ringworld, uh, which is a, a novel by Larry Niven, the idea of a Dyson sphere, which is basically it's uh, a sphere encompassing the entire sun, which uh, shows up in an episode that, that, that they actually have an actual uh, Dyson sphere uh, in um, a relics episode of Next Generation, where Scotty had been a transporter for eighty years, and they actually find this whole sphere encompassing a sun that's actually able to get all of the heat and the energy from it. So, and that's a lot of living space. Ringworld had the same concept. We said it was just a flat, sort of like a ring around the the. Um, and how sun. old would you have been when um, you uh, first read those? I would have probably been ten, maybe. Right. Eight and or ten. Now, how did you come upon them? Uh, you know, were your parents reading, and that was the influence, or um, you know, how did you come upon these? Those are because those are pretty substantial books to be reading at ten. Yeah, especially Dune because Ringworld was certainly a thinner one. I mean, later, the most recent big books I've read, and I did this a, a number of years ago, were the uh, George R. R. Martin series song of ice and fire um which is the, the what the um tv show was based on um game of thrones those five but each one is like a thousand pages so that was five books of that and i know he's working on um the uh, next book if that will ever come out it could be like harlan ellison's dangerous visions the third one which they're still waiting for possibly that um I wouldn't hold our breath to to see if uh, there's another Game of Thrones book. But yeah, for size and and just for thickness and what it does, the the, um, Dune book is great. Now, one thing that I really like, and and people will probably not like me for it because, um, but I love The Hobbit. Oh, yeah. um, More more than I like The Lord of the Rings. Okay, I think, you know, you're not alone there. Like, that's that's not an uncommon... Uh, sentiment, I would say. But were your parents avid readers or, um, you know, what? I guess, I mean, sometimes they'd recommend something like Wind in the Willows, for example, or something like that, where where it is, or The Borrowers, or something that's got clearly, you just think it's a children's book or, or something, or Talking Animals. That, to me, is still speculative or, or genre kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, that even infiltrates kids books you know like the 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 dinosaur egg whatever that story was that dealt with this kid finding this egg that turns out to be a dinosaur egg was a a, a kid uh, was a story for kids um see i think that in my case um although my parents were both uh readers they were always reading my dad was a 
a Western guy. He loved uh, Zane Grey. And again, my mom liked her, uh, her horror and Gothic horror and Gothic romances. Um, I, uh, for the longest time, uh, I was a comic book guy. Um, and generally it was like either my, my mom would, uh, bring some home, uh, or, uh, I would go with my dad and he would buy cigarettes and, uh, he would let me pick out a couple of comics from the, uh, the newsstand. And, uh, I always remember the, uh, you know, they always had the comics down low at, uh, proper, uh, eye, eye line for, uh, for kids. So I was certainly, uh, part of that market and uh, I still have a number of my my early comics and I'm fortunate because uh I'm an only child so unlike a lot of my friends who had younger siblings a lot of the things that I had in the 70s I still have uh because they were never destroyed and they're in good shape um Anyway, uh, yeah, definitely for me, it was a lot of comics, a lot of uh, DC, some Marvel. Um, and uh, it wasn't really until high school. See, I had this weird association where um, I thought of books, novels, as what you had to read in school uh, for a, a long period of time. The, these are the right. things that they make you read, but you can go and you can pick up your graphic novels or whatever. No one's going to make you read that. In fact, they're, they're trying to take it away from you. And like most things, when you're a teenager and they tell you that, you know, it's what you're looking at, they're poo-pooing, you're going to want more of that. Um, but the, the, the great thing that happened to me in high school was um, I discovered um, that we had a science fiction class that was an English course. Uh, and I'd heard really good things about the instructor. Uh, and all my friends were taking the class. Um, and I knew uh, that there was a lot of short fiction in it. And see, I also had this thought, for whatever reason, that uh, you know I wouldn't want to read a 400-plus page book when I was that age. So, uh, but I knew that I did like short stories. Um, I'd come across a few collections and, and I knew that could be a good time. And I liked the fact that with a short story, you could be in and out, you know, you could pick it up, read it, enter this little world. And it was basically like watching a, an episode of a TV show. It was about the same amount of time. Um, anyway, so I, I took the science fiction class uh, with uh, an instructor named Mr. Wood and it really was life changing. You know, they you hear that expression, but it really, really was life changing. Um, I, I read um, uh, John Wyndham's The Chrysalids. Uh, loved that mm. book. Like I found that just yeah. a profound book. I still think back on that book. Um, there was the uh, Science Fiction Hall of Fame. Uh, so many great short stories in there, and that's when I first came across the writings of Harlan Ellison. And Ellis, Ellison blew me away in terms of like his language and his usage and his ideas and how irreverent they were. You know, they weren't stuffy in any way. Um, and uh, often it made me laugh. 
you know, you know, we, we talked recently about emotional reaction to writing and I found Ellison so often was able to invoke emotions, whether it was humor uh, or anger in like a, in a short story, like I have no mouth and I must scream, which I came across in that class. Um, and, and uh, humor. Uh, there was a story in Chatterday uh, called How's the Nightlife on Casalda? And it's about um, this alien invasion. But what happens is um, the way they take over the earth, these aliens, is they basically copulate with every living being <laughs> and, uh, and basically, you know, humans lose lose control and it makes it easy for these aliens to take over once they've copulated with people. And there's a, a, a little bit in the short story where um, Ellison writes about uh, William Shatner and William Shatner's toupee uh, getting it on with one of these aliens. And, and I was on the subway in Toronto reading this at the time and I laughed so hard, you know, I had, had an actual laughing fit on the subway that I could not control. Um, and, and Ellison was definitely a huge influence. And, you know, then quickly went into the short stories of Stephen King and Ray Bradbury. And uh, those for me really became the big three uh, pillars of my early writing influences. I actually saw Ellison uh, live around 95 or so 95 or 96 i now just let me get my head around this i was going to ryerson it's wow my memory is so bad it could have been the mid 80s actually <laughs> might have been 85 <laughs> or 86 what a difference yeah. a decade makes but yeah, anyways it, it was at it was at ryerson right. and um it was in the middle of winter in toronto and it was like there was a blizzard that day and he comes, he shows up and he said, no, no blizzard's going to stop me from being here. Now, the first thing I got from him was the same sense I got when I saw Pat Benatar in concert, was just how, <laughs> was just how short he is, just right. like how short ben, Pat Benatar was. So here's this really short guy. And he had someone on stage doing the American Sign Language. Oh, nice. So he was talking about the Arctic turn for some reason. And then this woman was doing these big movements of her arms, like, like reaching them and then trying to touch the fingers to each other. Like she's uh, grabbing at something. And that somehow was a symbol for an Arctic turn. Uh, but I also remember uh, reading Ellison early on, but the things that really stuck with me, of course, of course there was also day of the Triffids, but for the shorter stories, and I never read the full length one of this, but Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes. It also won like mm. the Hugo and the Nebula. It was a right. novelette or novella. Um, that concept of it. I remember having a discussion with a, a head librarian back in the business library around uh, 1990, 1988, where I was talking about how that's one of my favorite uh, sort of science fiction stories was yes. for Algernon and she didn't consider it a science fiction what? story uh, partly because of how well written and how what it, oh. I just felt that it was that kind of thing that if it's a good story it can't be but if you're going to triple your wow. IQ from 68 to 204 that to me is a science fiction story 
Yeah. So did she have an issue with uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as well? I'm not sure, but that's another great, like I read that one as, as um, in class, I think it was at university. And that is such a good book. Um, It's also amazing how much they got Frankenstein kind of wrong in the earlier films, like the thirties and forties and whatever. Right. Um, uh, I'm trying to write, you probably have it off the the tip of your tongue, the name of the, the actor that played um, Frankenstein. Oh, Karloff. Yeah. Boris Karloff. Um, Because the novel is a very much a thinking person. There's a lot of talk. And there's all these discussions. I also saw Frankenstein. I didn't go there to London, England. But during this whole pandemic, they're showing stuff from the theater, from London theater. And if you got a subscription or if you did something or or played specifically free on a certain night. So what they had was recently, a few years ago, they had Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller playing the roles of Frankenstein, and Frankenstein's monster, because Frankenstein is the scientist. The, the, the monster is not Frankenstein. That's the monster. Right. So sometimes people refer to, and I wrote a poem about that, how people keep calling that monster Frankenstein. Right. Um, but what they did, and, and they've done this kind of things where Ian McKellen and Sir, Sir Patrick Stewart would do something where they would play these two main characters in a play, and the next night they would reverse roles. So what would happen is Benedict Cumberbatch would be the monster the first night, and the second night he is the scientist. Oh, nice. And it was just neat because it's the same play, same director, but they play something different. Like, like but Cumberbatch just played the whole thing early on where he's being been created and he's getting out of this cocoon and flopping around the stage. He doesn't know how to use his arms. And that went on for me a much longer than Johnny Lee Miller doing that in his uh, version. But it's neat seeing people doing the same roles in a different way. Well, you know, um, and if you don't mind me sort of jumping off here, David, but, and, and I hope people don't balk at this idea too much. You know, the, the difference between the adaptation of, uh, of Universal's Frankenstein and the novel of Frankenstein is a lot like what happened with The Shining, um, where the King novel, there's so much more heart behind it. And um, the character of Jack Torrance is, such, is a much more sympathetic character uh, in the novel. Now, I am not one of those people who's going to trash Kubrick's Shining. I love the film. Uh, it's it's a, a masterpiece of filmmaking. But in terms of adaptation it's as far away from the original work as as uh, the universal frankenstein films that's what well, that i'm trying re- to say well, well that's a good point i mean one thing because you have to have the film in some cases you have to have the film set aside and treated on its own um i i prefer adaptations that are much closer which is why that miniseries of Dune, which was like six episodes, was far better than the Colin McLaughlin two-hour film, even though Sir Patrick Stewart was great in it as Gurney Halleck. But um, a friend of mine years ago mentioned to me how much he could not stand the Wizard of Oz film, the 1939 Judy Garland film, because it was so different 
than the L. Frank Baum yeah. story. Right. So he couldn't get past that. But for me, now I haven't read the L. Frank Baum one. Now, if I read it, I would probably just enjoy it and think, oh, it's very different from the film, but it stands on its own. And I'm not going to hold back a film that is as good as the uh, Wizard of Oz just right. because it differs too much from the um, original material. Yeah, and that's one of those uh, cases uh, that sort of backs up the way I like to do it. I prefer to uh, to see a film first and then I can enjoy it for whatever it is and then go back to the source material and sort of see um, you know those areas that they weren't able to develop in the film, usually because of time restraints. Um, and uh, and then I can appreciate both of them. But if I start with the book and go to the film, generally you're going to find things to nitpick about. Um, I wanted to just go back for a second and ask you, Dave, I talked a little bit about um, uh, dabbling in comics as a, as a kid and how that was sort of my eventual pathway to actual reading, I should say, you know, I don't want it because I don't, because uh, sequential art in its a myriad of forms is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, I, I guess perhaps because of the age we grew up in, I'm, I'm even in my mind, and even though I have hundreds of uh, graphic novels and thousands of comic books, I'm, I'm still probably slagging the art form as inferior to uh, novels, which I shouldn't do. It's just different. But anyway, having said that, uh, what were some of your favorite uh, comics when you were younger, like as a kid? Well, um, I certainly read uh, and loved, there are a couple Dracula ones. One of them was Tomb of Dracula. Right, which is, I think, Gene Colan, who was wonderful. He did a lot of Batman work. Yeah, and Batman, of course, um, Spider-Man. Now, I was big into Conan, so I read Conan's saga and Savage Sword of Conan and watched them. Uh, I've read them often, Doctor Strange um, also. So there were a number of, beyond the standard ones, because everyone always got the Archie uh, comics. Uh, Those were just, you had to have those. That's Uh, right. Just just as in the 70s, you had to have watched um, uh, a certain show and talk about it next day at at class. The um, Happy Days was one of those shows. That's right. I and I to do that. Sorry, I was just going to say, I guess with um, Archie is the equivalent of the joke that Mark, uh, Mike Myers has made about uh, Fleetwood Mac uh, rumors where he says, uh, if you lived in the suburbs, uh, you know, it was issued to you. And Archie comics were sort of like that. You know, every household had a bunch of uh, pep or life with Archie or Betty and Veronica comics kicking around. Okay, sorry to have interrupted you there, Dave. Go ahead. No worries. Well, one of the things I thought that, that because I should have mentioned this as an early influence, one of the things I wanted to hear from you about is is Magic Shadows that all of us in Southern Ontario grew up on. And he would do the occasional, you know, movie night where it would be like, scary films or science fiction films and so on. Now for me, two of my favorite films going back a while, like late fifties, early sixties was the thing from another world and the invasion of the body snatchers. 
Oh, did you see the Snatchers on uh, on Elwi on uh, Magic Shadows? Yeah, probably. Wow, nice. Um, so yeah, he had some great uh, songs. My brother-in-law Rob Sawyer had uh, was on Elwi a number of times. We're hoping to have uh, Rob. Um, we'll be recording a podcast with him in the next couple of weeks that will be about the Planet of the Apes film that came out in 1968. That's the Charlton Heston first of that series of films. And we'll also talk about other ape films and so on, but we'll do a bit more of a deep dive on that because he's very much of interest uh, with that. But it's amazing how many things have spun off. Like the Invasion of the Body Snatchers was remade in with Donald Sutherland in the 70s. Thing from Another World, that was one of the best remakes ever next to Aliens oh, yeah. from Alien, which isn't yeah. a remake, but it's a sequel. But that, that sort of chain, that, that connection, because it was... Um, it was John Carpenter who um, I guess it's still based on who goes there by John W. Campbell, but um, John Carpenter did uh, a version of the thing from another world with um, Kurt Russell starring in it. Right. And, and, you know, I actually heard um, the director Mick Garris talking about, the thing recently because he was originally involved in the promotion of that film. Um, and he said, um, you know, most people will say now that um, Halloween may be Carpenter's most famous film, but the thing is his best film. And the funny thing about it is that when it came out, uh, it didn't do well at all. Um because this was still, I believe that was 82, uh, but it was the year of ET. And the, the thinking was upon release and upon people not going to see it was that ET had sort of primed this idea of the friendly alien. And, and uh, people weren't in a rush to return to this sort of Cold War uh, paranoia kind of feeling. Although... Uh, you know, it's turned out to have incredible legs. It's it's so well regarded. And uh, most people having seen it, uh, you know, love that film. And, and what I love about it is, you know, as being one of those films that is pre-CGI, it's remarkable, the actual uh, practical effects that were created for that film. Like you look at some of those, uh, the monsters for that, and it's it's just it's jaw dropping, you know. Um, and if you tried to do it with CGI now, you wouldn't buy it. You know, you would look at it and go, "Yeah, it looks pretty," but I don't I don't have any sense that it's really happening. That there's any threat. Um, yeah, there's just one little thing that bothered me from the film because you know you'd sort of look at it and you you're nitpicky or you point out something or why did they do this or whatever. The film holds together so well and is so smart. And then they eventually find that that whatever this alien is, is actually trying to build or create a, a, a flying saucer to get out of there with parts. And it's just it's just such a good film. But there's a scene where they're trying to figure out who is the alien. And during that scene, they are able to determine without trying to give away too much. Because the, the thing is, these films are from 40 years ago. So there shouldn't be any spoiler. Like we should be able to say, in yes. detail what happens in these things that's but right in, just in case someone listening to this wants to watch the thing which is from 1982 
uh, which is highly recommended. There is a scene where they're trying to determine who the alien is, and they have a way of determining that, and that they are able to determine that a certain person isn't an alien. So what I would do in that case is I would then remove that person, like like stop them from being, you know, tied to a chair, untie them, and get them out of there, and then maybe test the next person. Yes. If you're going to test someone and find out that they're okay, and then if you test someone else, it turns out they're bad and they start causing problems. You don't want that first person to be at risk by being right next to that other person. Like that made to me no sense in the film. No. Uh, One of the things we will talk about is bad science or bad, bad things. Uh, My biggest bugaboo is from the movie Contact, where they're trying to figure out how many how many worlds could possibly contain sentient life, which is why we're not alone. And there's uh, Jodie Foster in this wonderful speech about, well, if you consider there are X number of worlds, like a a hundred million worlds and one in a million of those worlds has these conditions. Well, that's a hundred now. And you take a 1 million of those worlds. Well, that's 100 divided by a million. Like it becomes zero very quickly. But if we get into like a specific podcast about bad science, we will get into that in a bit more detail. But if you actually do the math, it makes no sense. And Jodie Foster is a pretty smart woman. Uh, Also, that movie Contact was was wonderful. I haven't read the novel that's based on, but that's Carl Sagan, who was more known for um, being uh, someone that brought science to people like the the nowadays. um, Neil deGrasse uh, Tyson. And Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, but he actually wrote that novel. And if that novel is, I'm sure with most novels, like Arrival and everything else, the story that it's based on is always better than, than the result. That this is, has to be a great novel because that's such a good story. Other than that one scene where the math is so wrong that it's laughable. So David, let me ask you, did you end up seeing Wonder Woman 1984? I have not seen it yet because during this pandemic, it's thirty dollars. Yeah, yeah. Well, the reason I, yeah, the reason I bring it up, uh, listeners, is that um, as Dave and I were sort of prepping to get the show up and running, um, I had mentioned that I had just seen Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four, and I sort of what I will say made the mistake of of paying for the film. Um, but it, uh, we were talking about uh, bad science, which is what made me think of it. Um, you know, there's, uh, we understand that when we see a film that is a fantasy that we need to suspend our disbelief. And we understand that there is a contract, an implicit contract, uh, that we have as a viewer with the filmmaker and we sort of sign off, you know, we, we, we know that this woman is going to be, uh, doing, uh, unbelievable things. And we're okay with that to an extent. And part of the problem was the first Wonder Woman film was, was so good. It was, it was excellent. I mean, there were, it was Oscar worthy in some ways. Um, but uh, this film, you had to suspend your disbelief so many times that it, it, it I found by the time you got into the third act, you were, uh, um, in the land of uh, 
Ed Wood of an Ed Wood film, like Plan 9 almost. Uh, now, in terms of production values, it was wonderful. But in terms of just uh, logic, not so good. Now, David, did you want me to touch on um, uh, Magic Shadows uh, and LVO? Yeah, but I was going to I was going to do a joke. Okay, um, Joe, here, I, go for it. What, which was the idea of, uh, of suspending one's disbelief. There could be a suspension bridge of disbelief, but with, <laughs> I'm sure, with the 1984 um, uh, film uh, for Wonder Woman, you would think that it would be more like the Tacoma Narrows bridge, which I think every high school student saw a picture of based, you know, the one that the bridge that just keeps yeah. flopping around, eventually breaking apart because of um, the winds somehow caused this harmonic resonance. And it just basically the science sort of failed there as well. Yeah. <laughs> but if you want to talk about magic shadows, uh, please. Uh, yeah. That, well, and for those who are not aware, uh, magic shadows was uh, aired on TVO, which is sort of the, um, uh, a provincial equivalent of PBS in the States. Um, and it was hosted by a gentleman uh, named Elwi Yost on, and it aired on Saturdays, I believe. Is that right? Was it Saturdays? Oh no, that was at the yeah, movies. I think it was Saturday right? night or. Yeah, I think, I think it may have yeah, been. It was either a, Saturday or Friday. It was at 7 PM, right? Oh, that right. was at the movies. You're right. That's right. And, and I quite, I remember like rushing in at seven o'clock on some nights to watch these films again, because this is pre uh, the ability to record anything. And I mean, so not only were there no VCRs to record things, there was no such thing as VHS to play things at home. If you wanted to watch something, a film like say King Kong from 1933, you would have to, and you, and, and you weren't willing to wait what you could do is go to the back of some of the magazines that we would have been buying, like uh, fam- famous monsters of Hollywood. And at the back of the magazine, there would be a section where you could mail away for super eight or eight millimeter versions of certain films. And, and I'm like, these maybe would be on two or three reels and an eight millimeter spool of film, I think would run like 10 minutes at the most. I think anyway, but so you obviously got a condensed version. I don't think that you could get a two hour film. Please let me know if that's not right. Maybe you could, but I, I can't even imagine how big a spool of eight millimeter film would have to be to, uh, to fit on these little projectors that, that we had at the time. Anyway, so it was a big deal uh, to, to watch some of these old films on, on TVO. Uh, and Ellie would also, uh, often have interviews uh, with some of the actors and directors who were in these classic Hollywood films, very much like what TCM does now, but not an entire channel once a week with one film. Um, And so there were films like Mighty Joe Young, uh, Phantom of the Opera, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and uh, King Kong, which I saw for the first time on magic shadows and check it out uh, on youtube i think it's still there the opening animation uh and music for the show was just beautiful um the music sounds a lot like 
across the universe by the Beatles. Um, it's, and I don't mean that in it, in, in that it's derivative or, um, uh, you know, ripping it off, but it's just sort of evokes some of the same feelings that the Beatles song does. So uh, that's saying something, if you can create a theme for uh, a TVO program that, that sounds that good. And the animation uh, is, is also beautiful. Um, but yeah, I, I saw King Kong and that just was, was, you know, blew my mind. It was something that was exciting, but not frightening. Um, that, that's my, was my takeaway from King Kong. It's like, uh, you know, I loved the film. I loved the, the places it took you without being terrifying. You didn't stay awake at night worried that King Kong was going to, uh, you know, bust his hand through your window and take you away. Um, maybe if you were Faye Ray or maybe the girls did. I don't know. I don't think so, though. Um, it was just a, a great. Well, it's great- always good getting a bit of. Uh- good getting a bit of Canadian content in there with uh, Elwe Yost and Magic Shadows because uh, remember Heavy Metal that had John Candy in, right. in it. And also one thing that, that some of our Doctor Who fans would remember if they're old enough was Judith Merrill introducing episodes of Doctor Who back in the 70s. And she would sort of introduce it and talk a bit about it. She'd talk about what chroma key is and, and various other things. And then it would, and then they'd play the episodes. And I remember that back in the 70s. Um, that was TVO as well, wasn't it? I think it might have been. Yeah, there was a lot of great stuff, especially the, you know, uh, British uh, shows like uh, Doctor in the House and Python, of course, was on TVO. Um, I always found it odd. It's like, because this is pre-satellite and pre, you know, being able to get any show you ever wanted at, at any time of day. But uh, I always sort of wondered as a kid, is how, how is it that I'm able to watch shows from England uh, on this hmm. channel? You know, one thing we haven't talked about is the idea. I mean, we have to be wrapping up soon. Um, I, I had this idea of this concept for like one hour shows, like a, a science fiction convention where someone holds up a card with 10 minutes left to let us know we've got five minutes because people have to be able to get to the next panel. But uh, one of the things I I think that we should, if we if we're allowed to get it um, or to be able to play it would be some of the stand-up that relates to uh, science fiction or fantasy or anything like that, because uh, a friend of mine was playing this piece that I had forgotten about that was stand up when Woody Allen was doing stand up in the sixties. And he talked about these aliens who showed up uh, on earth wanting their laundry. And the person said, well, do you have your ticket? Uh, and, and the aliens say no. So then they have to go back to the planet to <laughs> get the ticket to be able to pick yeah. up their laundry. But, but there's been some great, you know, stand up that has some sort of the connection to, you know, science fiction or fantasy right. that might be uh, worth exploring as well. Like there's a lot of humor, like you can even just get into a whole episode just on the parodies of the classic series of Star Trek. Oh yeah. Yeah. That would be you know, a fun beyond time. the blooper reels. Definitely. Cause I actually did it. I did attend the 1976 Toronto Trek convention that had all of the actors other than the big three 
Uh, it didn't have um, uh, Kirk's, uh, Spock, or McCoy, but it had all the other cast members um, uh, there. That was my first science fiction convention was Toronto was the uh, Trek seventy six in Toronto at the Royal York Hotel. That is hardcore. Um, we should get also in. Yeah, yeah, that goes back a bit. But is there any final things that you because uh, we've been going a bit longer than an hour? Of course, maybe they've edited this down, and we've got five minutes. This we've only in five minutes so far. That's but, right. Um, is there anything that you want to uh, uh, jump? In? One of the things that you you did mention to me was this is where we actually picked up in repeats things like all the different Godzilla films in the seventies. Right, and we can thank. Uh... Our uh, our Buffalo broadcasters for that as well. Um, I, I believe I know it was Barry Lillis, so I, I think that was WGN, which is Channel Two, the NBC uh, affiliate. Um, yeah, and if we don't it, say something about the Night Stalker, we will be uh, killed. If we don't say something about the Night Stalker <laughs> later on, X Files well, and other things, but certainly. Yeah. We'll be saying a lot about the Night Stalker. We both love the Night Stalker, love Darren McGavin. Um, you know, actually, I would love to do sort of a show at some point about the connections to um, Bob Clark's Christmas Story. All of the people that, uh, you know, were involved with Christmas Story that have genre connections and how Bob Clark uh, went on to to do a film, or actually, I guess he'd done it before Christmas story, but he'd done some uh, really great horror things like children shouldn't play with dead things. And um, uh, black Christmas, which is one of my all time favorite films, a Canadian. Well, yeah, it is a Canadian horror film. John Saxon is in it. And John Saxon has so many uh, genre connections as well. Um, what was the question, David? And also, also uh, right. Also, a tri- we don't want to forget Trilogy of Terror, uh, which was also one of those early influences for me that scared the hell out of me. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. And that was one of those ones that you talked about in the schoolyard. And we'll be having a lot of those discussions, too. And also with uh, Night Stalker, that's uh, uh, Richard Matheson. And, and God, we love Matheson. We pray at the altar of uh, Richard Matheson. Uh, we'll be getting in, uh, doing a deep dive on him at some point in the future. And looking forward to it, we are. So, uh, Troy, thanks a lot. This was a great first episode. And I think the next one, depending on if we keep to our schedule, it would be an SF preview um, episode where what we do is we just look at what will be coming out soon because hopefully it'll be at broadcast at the moment. We're planning on April of 2021, but we'll see how that goes. But because we're just starting this whole podcast and this is our first episode. So we are going to be uh, doing a, a lot of fun stuff and hopefully people will come back and listen. But the, the plan is, is to maybe do something about what are the, you know, what TV guides in August would always have, you know, the returning shows and the new shows. So what we'd look at is if we've already heard about which ones have been signed to come back in the fall, plus plans for, uh, upcoming TV shows that are genre, also movies that are coming up. There are ways of getting this kind of information, but what we'll do is we'll call through all that and then just bring that to the show about, you know, what are the things that we're looking forward to? And of course there's a whole Marvel universe and there's DC universe and they have their films planned out 
for a number of years so we can give updates on on when those things are coming out and then we'll of course have an episode with rob sawyer um on the planet of the apes and other ape films and we'll be doing more after that we have a galaxy of genre related topics to cover and uh really looking forward to it and looking forward to uh feedback from folks and uh yeah really uh glad to get this thing off the ground david Yep. Thanks a lot, Troy. And thanks everyone for, for listening again. I am David Klink. And I am Troy Harkin. And this was Two Old Farts. Talk sci-fi. Talk sci-fi.